In this week's episode, we'll talk about forbidden fruit, Holy Communion, and pesky shoelaces. <laughs> Welcome to Table Talk. Welcome to Table Talk with Mike and Angela, a weekly conversation focused on helping you understand more about the Bible, faith, and what it means to live a faithful life. And now, here are your hosts, Pastors Mike Holly and Angela Martin. Well, on the podcast today, we're going to talk about food and eating. Consider how much of life actually happens around food or even around a table. You know, we celebrate with food. We comfort ourselves in grief with food. Life's important events are made better or maybe less bitter with food. Now, we're about to celebrate Halloween here and where our, our food consists of various forms of sugar. It's just complete sugar rush city on the 31st of October. And then of course, then we go to Thanksgiving where we feast and feast and then we nap and maybe we feast some more along with our closest family members or friends. You know, I think about how uh, even in, in difficult times, uh, friends might take uh, meals over to a loved one uh, or friend who's lost someone or maybe somebody who's recovering from a difficult surgery. <laughs> you know, we're Methodists and Methodists are known for their potluck meals where people bring their best recipes and their most divine desserts. Mm -hmm. And in the South, there is all the fried chicken you can eat. <laughs> you know, food is not just for eating, even though we'll talk a lot about that. It's also about gathering together to eat. I mean, think about how many times gathering for a meal opens the door to even stronger relationships. Now, we are talking about food though too. And Angela, you said in an earlier podcast that we won't last very long without air. Uh, okay. Well, the same thing is about food. We can last a little bit longer without food, but not too long. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Greek poet and playwright Euripides said that when a man's stomach is full, it makes no difference whether he is rich or poor. Mm. So it would seem that a full belly is like the great equalizer, right? Uh, yeah, food is important and it's important in scripture. I mean, we see it in so many places throughout the Bible. Uh, our key verse for today is Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then on and on through Scripture, we see that food seems to appear, appear on nearly every page. Uh, we read the story about Jacob and Esau, how, um, you know, Jacob manipulates his brother for his birthright, you know, over a bowl of lamb stew or something, I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, we read about the dietary laws in Exodus and Leviticus that serve as a reminder that holiness is accomplished intentionally. Uh, the land that was promised to the Israelite people was described as a land flowing with food, milk and honey. Uh, we have that great story where Elijah is running from Jezebel and uh, 
he stops to rest, but God wakes him up, you know, in the morning and commands him to eat because the journey ahead of him is going to be so hard that uh, he needs to have the sustenance. We have Daniel, uh, the story where he continues to uh, eat kosher and take care of himself and be healthy in spite of the king's insistence that he eat his the king's food. Uh, Peter learned that God loves all people through a dream about food. And then, of course, Jesus. We have all the stories of Jesus and how he sat at table and broke bread with even the sinners. Hmm. Well, and you notice how many times in the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that food is both fuel and it's also there to be enjoyed. You know, I mean, you think about, uh, like you said, about um, uh, the, the Elijah episode where, you know, he needs that that food to be his fuel, to give him the strength to continue on his journey. We think about how people ate in order to get ready uh, for the the exodus. You know, they, they feasted and then they uh, packed up the bread uh, that was unleavened. It was made quickly so that they could go and it was fuel for the journey. But food is also meant to be enjoyed and we, we see so many times how God is compared to the good tasting or the sweet things in life or how God is um, the one who leads us to the still waters. You know, we have a complex relationship with food, don't we? I mean, we know we need good food and yet we also are told not to eat too much. I, I've been watching a, a recent documentary on online with my wife, Julie, and, and one of the things that the, the gentleman says is, eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. That's his rule <laughs> for, for eating. You know, and that sounds good. That sounds smart. That sounds easy. But there's a lot of things that I like to eat that he would not categorize as food, mm. actual food. <laughs> uh, we need food. It tastes good. And there are, um, there are things built and wired within us about what foods we think we should eat or we are, in a sense, drawn to eat. You know, scientists say that our love of sweet foods has an important tie to our hunter-gatherer roots, that human beings uh, needed quick sources of energy for draining tasks like hunting. Uh, and so they were drawn to foods like honey uh, which is loaded with sugar as a way to give them the energy they needed for those short bursts uh, of, of draining activities. You know, in a similar way, our aversion away from bitter foods was seen as sort of that, um, that, that way that we are biologically hacked to guard ourselves from possibly toxic or poisonous foods in the wild because most of those uh, unfit or poisonous foods have a bitter taste to them. And so we are, we are especially at a young age, uh, drawn away from bitter foods. And of course, I think that kind of ties in to the very first thing that we read in the Bible about eating. The first temptation centers around what not to eat, what is not good for us. 
you know, we kind of ignore that we can eat anything else in the whole Garden of Eden. Anything and everything else is fair for Adam and Eve to eat. But God does say, you know, this one fruit on this one tree is not to be eaten. Here is the very first diet restriction. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a simple command, right? I mean, clear cut, just just like your documentary, eat food, mostly plants. Right. I mean, there's uh, there's not any muddiness to that. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. And God's commands are the same way for us. I mean, we see it in this this first command that that kind of lays out the template for all of His other commands. And the first one being is that it's very clear. Um, and if we think about God's other commandment, the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, very, very clear. We know what we're supposed to do. The first four have to do with how we treat God. And then the other six have to do with how we treat others. Uh, and then Jesus follows that. You know, his simple instructions are love God and, and love neighbor. And also... Uh, another truth that is evident to us, I think, in this first command is that God uh, gives humanity the responsibility of personal choice. Mm. You know, God wants us to think for ourselves. He doesn't push us around like little robots, right? He wants us to make the choice because there is value in the choosing. And so the trouble starts when we start thinking only of ourselves, right? Right. Mm. Instead of just listening to our hearts, we need to listen with our hearts. Uh, but here in Genesis 3, the devil <laughs> introduces chaos, which is, you know, what happens some, even with food, even with our own choice of food, right? I mean, the sugar tastes good. Mm. It's not good for you, but it sure does taste good. And that's a little chaos there. Uh, the devil introduces chaos into the simple clarity of God's commands. God is clear. Satan causes confusion. And if you read through that story of what he says to Adam and Eve, you know, he misquotes God. He calls God's character into question. He manipulates God's commands. He makes them sound like a contradiction to common sense, you know, like, you know, God just doesn't want you to know all that he knows. That's all. You know, what's really going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. Right? And he makes God look like the guilty party by doing all of that. And so within that, uh, we see some insights for ourselves. Uh, the first one being that Satan can twist God's positive commands by focusing our minds on the negative. You know, like you said, God offers an entire garden, but Satan emphasizes what is off limits. Uh, and then the second thing, Satan twists God's negative commands by focusing on the positive, right? He downplays the consequences, the, de the destructive results, you know, are just conveniently ignored through all of that. But our answer for that, and it, it would have been Adam and Eve's answer as well, is to just say no, no, exclamation point. You know, that can be our only response to Satan. And James said it well for us. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so our first priority 
is to not only fall in love with God, submit ourselves to God, but to stay in love with God. And we talk about that in the Methodist Church, you know, stay in love with God by attending to all those um, spiritual disciplines, prayer, study scripture, worship, you know, communion, all those things. So just say no, <laughs> right? <laughs> it all goes back to those, those, those things that we learned when we were young. Yes. <laughs> just say no. Just say no. Right. So instead of following God, instead of staying in love with God, uh, Eve and Adam chose to go a, a very different path. They chose to do something that was against what God had asked them to do, against the command of God. You know, her actions and Adam's are examples of two ways that we can run from God. You know, the first is licentiousness. The idea that we give ourselves a license to do whatever it is we please. You know, we, we do what feels good. We, we do what we think is right. Even if God and all of our friends and family say to us that that's wrong, we, we want to push against those constraints and feel like, you know, it's my life and I want to do what I want to do, right? Mm -hmm. If I want to mess it up, I'll, I'll mess it up. <laughs> the other, of course, the other way we can run from God is legalism. You know, instead of uh, thinking uh, about how um, we can, you know, make a life that is reliant on, on God, you know, we, we drive a wedge in our relationship with God and allow our good behavior to create distance between us and God. Like, you know, in the sense that I'm a good person, I do all these things, and so I am then, you know, allowed to have other ways that I can do as I please. Mm -hmm. So licentiousness and legalism originate from our desire to supervise ourselves rather than submit and surrender to God. You know, rules can be controlled. God cannot. Rules can be bent. <laughs> God will not be. You know, rules feel safe, but God is dangerous. I mean, rules do our thinking for us. Do this, don't do this. Mm -hmm. Whereas God requires us to be open to his spirit's leading. Rules are kind of like one size fits all, whereas, you know, we are looking for God's revelation that, you know, we will grow over time with, with God's wisdom as, as he gives it over to us. So, you know, in a sense, when we try to run from God and build our own rules and our own way of, of living this life, we're just repeating the same old mistakes that have happened ever since Genesis 3. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, the, and that does something to our relationship with God, doesn't it? Uh, have you ever had, or maybe your children had, that pair of shoes where you just felt like you were tying the shoelaces like all day long. Like they just continued to come undone. You know, they run 10 feet and, and there they are. They're tripping all over their shoelaces. Well, it's amazing what we study these days and what money is spent on to study. But apparently engineers at the University of California set out to solve this mystery of why some shoelaces do this. Do tell. <laughs> well, they concluded that shoelaces untie themselves in a two-step process. 
The first is that the foot's impact with the ground loosens the knot ever so slightly. And then the second, the G-forces exerted on the laces as a walker swings his legs back and forth are comparable to the G's experienced on a high-speed roller coaster. Huh. Never would have guessed that. But anyway, the pounding and the swinging collaborate to unravel the best tied shoelaces. And, you know, this is our relationship with God, right? God created us to be united. And of course, united and untied have the same letters. And so we can see how this easily happens, right? <laughs> our unitedness becomes untied. Uh, but the impact of sin and the stress of ongoing disobedience untie the once tight relationship. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, the ongoing feast with God among the trees of the garden, that's no, no longer ours to enjoy. And uh, Deere and Spoo said, it, it's ironic, isn't it, that Adam and Eve's act of eating left them famished, and then we inherited their hunger. Mm. Um, and then... <laughs> When we are in that state, when we are hungry and seeking to satisfy, uh, sometimes our, our situation becomes desperate enough that we will just try anything to fill that emptiness. And we hear about that so much uh, when, when people hit rock bottom or you know, they realize that they have been trying to fill their, their lives with all these other things without addressing the emptiness that's there they start to understand how they have been busy trying to fill that emptiness, um, that desire with all the wrong things. Um, and so I think that connects along with what you just said about how, you know, the, the things that we crave and try to eat like the forbidden fruit um, unravels us, unties us instead of uniting us with God and others. And so I think that that, along with this emptiness, really sets us up for the second part of our conversation. But before we get there, we're going to take a, a quick break and hear from JT and Stanley about an important highlighted ministry here at Bluff Park United Methodist Church. Have you ever heard of UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief? They are a committee in the United Methodist Church that sends relief to people who have experienced natural disasters, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, and other things like that. It's important that you know that when you give to UMCOR, you're not paying for any infrastructure, you're not paying for any employees, you're not paying for anything like that. Every time you give to UMCOR, it goes directly 100% towards the relief effort. That's for the materials that people need, that's for water, that's for anything that they can need in these areas. Our church is currently collecting funds for UMCOR to help people who have gone through Hurricane Sally and Hurricane Delta. If you would like to donate to UMCOR, you can drop your checks off at the church on Sunday mornings or anytime throughout the week from 8 to 4. Make the check out to Bluff Park United Methodist Church and put UMCOR in the memo line. So, you know, we were talking about how we're tempted to fill our lives with the wrong things things that God has clearly told us that are bad for us. Often we find that these things are good at filling us for a moment, but we are all too soon back at being hungry for more. You know, it makes me think about that scene in 
John's Gospel where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And day by day, including her, people are coming to the well to draw out water that they will need for that day. And when she and Jesus have their conversation along the course of that talk, Jesus offers her living water, saying to her that if she drinks this water, she'll never be thirsty again. And of course she says, give me some of that water, right? Jesus is not talking about permanent hydration. He's talking about something deeper, more spiritual. When Jesus talks about our spiritual hunger and thirst, he is very often sitting at a well or seated at a table and he's talking about food or water or drink, but he's connecting it to something much deeper. Yeah, so many good stories about Jesus being at table uh, with those who uh, the cool kids didn't think deserved hmm. having Jesus sitting with them at the table, uh, tax collectors. Uh, we think of the story about Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector himself. You know, Jesus invites himself home with Zacchaeus and has a meal with him, and Zacchaeus is transformed in the midst of that meal. We think about Jesus sitting uh, at the table again with those, you know, the cool kids, and in walks a woman of ill repute. She washes Jesus' feet, and again, transformation takes place. Um, and then, of course, that final meal that uh, Jesus shares with his friends, the Passover meal, where he gives wine and bread new meaning. Uh, one of God's first commands is identical to the same command that Christ gives to his followers around the table. And I love this comparison that Spoo draws between the two. He says in Genesis God offers the gift of eternal life. Through Christ, God offers the same gift yet again. In the garden, God offers fruit. At the table, Christ offers his flesh. The God of the garden and the Christ of the table offer their food for free. And though at no cost to us, this food of the Savior's came at a high price to him. Wow, I love that comparison. Hmm. You know, when I saw the title of this week's word, I knew at some point we would sit down at the table with, with Jesus at the Last Supper and talk about the meaning of, of Holy Communion. You know, we, we sometimes have this image of, uh, of Jesus sitting with the disciples at a table like we would normally sit at and sharing a, a meal, but it's, it's interesting that the, the table that they most likely sat at was called a triclinium, and it was sort of a, a block U-shaped table, and it wasn't very high off the ground. In fact, you know, they, they would recline on pillows on the floor uh, to eat. And that's most likely the setting for the Last Supper, that they were reclined on the floor uh, when they ate that, that meal together. And, and of course, that ties to our remembrance and celebration of not only that Last Supper, but what Jesus then does and, and accomplishes in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, when we, in our faith tradition, look at bread and, you know, for most of us, grape juice, we see them as more than just symbols of that meal. You know, God gracefully takes our store-bought or even homemade bread 
and our Welch's 100% grape juice and uses them to convey his grace to us. You know, the bread is Christ's body for us and that God does the same thing for us in that sharing of bread as he does in Christ's own body when it is broken for us. And that is the same for the grape juice or the red wine. The same benefits are given to us when we feast with Jesus at his table and he sets for us um, God, God, God's love and, and grace and forgiveness. You know, when, when Jesus sets the table for us, God uses these elements of bread and wine to become channels for his grace to come to us. But there's, there's something more that happens there too. It's not just about grace and love and spiritual nourishment coming to us. It's also about uniting us because we gather together at the table as one body. In fact, many times you will find churches that use one single loaf and one shared cup to signify how everyone is fed from the same elements. Holy communion in a pandemic is a little tricky, isn't it? It has been, yeah. We're, we're not really partaking from one loaf or dipping our portion of bread into a common cup. Again, which demonstrates our unity in Christ and God's fairness, giving of, of one thing to everyone so that everyone has what they need. Uh, we often have these prepackaged elements that have a very tiny wafer in it <laughs> with barely enough juice. We don't huddle together around an altar rail with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, again, these, these are all moments in which we understand that Jesus is providing spiritual food and nourishment to us, but it's also a time of him reuniting people together and tying us together as, as his body, just like he was tying his disciples together at that last supper, preparing them for not only what was about to happen to him, but for their future together. He ties us together. In fact, one of the things that we often practice at Holy Communion is the practice of confessing our sins before God and others in a way of saying that, you know, we have failed to do what God has called us to do and we have probably failed one another in some way. And we're asking for forgiveness so that when we come up to the altar, we are forgiven not only by God, but by one another. So it's at moments like that where we gather around the table as a church family, where we gather together for Holy Communion, preparing to eat the gifts that God has, has given to us and made channels of grace for us, that this meal is what we truly need. His food is more than enough. And it reminds us how much this meal means to us, his people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think what it says to us is that, you know, Jesus says to all of us, uh, his followers and, and his would-be followers, that he is the only one capable, like you say, of, of satisfying the deep hunger of our hearts. God formed us and only God can feed us. It's simple. It is. <laughs> God made us. God is the only one who can feed us the thing that will fill that emptiness within us. And, you know, what does God do? If, if God says, basically, I'm the only one who can give you the food that you need, that living water, that 
that manna that will be with you forever, that daily bread that we pray about in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't hold it over us, does he? He invites us to his table as often as we can. He wants to provide this for us. He wants us to sit at his table. You know, we're not relegated to the kids' table. Yeah. But there's value in in making the choice to come to the table and receive. Exactly. Exactly. Well, here we are towards the end of the podcast for this week. And, you know, we we really hope that, that this has been meaningful as you have thought about the type of food and nourishment that God is actively providing to you and also the ways in which he's inviting you to his table. But before we officially end the podcast, we're going to turn it over to JT and Stanley for another very interesting sponsor for this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stairs. Have you ever needed to get to the second or third floor of a building and the elevator's broken? Stairs can help you with that. Stairs have been around since the beginning of time and they have helped mankind continue to climb upward. Try Stairs today. Well, Angela, it's been amazing to see how food has woven its way through Scripture from the very first thing that we're not supposed to eat to the very things that God wants us to get full from Mm -hmm. at his table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has. I mean, food plays such an important part in in our lives and our culture. But, you know, there's one meal that, that takes priority over all the others. And that's that's the food that God gives. And I love that, you know, his table is open for us, that there's no bar set in our way. We can come and dine with him. Well, thank you for being with us today. And I hope you'll join us for next week's podcast as we continue Table Talk this fall.